Welcome to Real Life Rescues, a podcast that's going to go behind the scenes and take an in-depth look into the operational and personal accounts of EMS first responders from Israel's largest fully volunteer EMS provider, United Atzala. Many volunteers available in Beit Shemesh across from the Noach Ayala trails. And units available in Tamaria near the Keen area for an 11-year-old boy pulled into the water, possibly drowning. Angel 7 is in the water with the boat. Backup units needed. Welcome to Real Life Rescues, a podcast that goes behind the scenes and takes an in-depth look into the operational and personal accounts of EMS first responders from Israel's largest fully volunteer EMS provider, United Atzala. I'm Rafael Posh. And I'm Dovi Maizel. And this episode is our second part of what we're calling License to Innovate. Uh, last week, we spoke a lot about uh, small-scale innovations. We spoke about how the organization started uh, the idea of AmbiCycles, and we had engaging the community at the forefront of lifesaving. Um, now we're going to talk about some of the larger, I guess, uh, more... The cool part. The cool part. <laughs> the more, more revolutionary uh, stuff that we've got going on, especially a lot of stuff in the past year. Um, things like our, our work with Carbine uh, and their dispatch and location system, uh, our new communications and cellular technology that we're dealing with with the rug gear phones we just invent, uh, developed and brought into our system. Uh, and as well, our, our future uh, agreement with um, City Transfer for co-sharing collapsible. City Transformer. City Transformer. Thank you. City Transformer for co-sharing collapsible cars. Dove, you want to get us kicked off with uh, talking about Carbine? All right. So first of all, um, a great being here again, speaking to everyone, sharing the, these great stories here. Um, well, yeah, saving lives here is, is, is combined, first of all, people, like we've been talking about until now. But... People without technology is only part of the job. So over the years, we've been working on different layers and solutions of technology here that will be a tool for our volunteers to uh, respond more effectively, faster, um, using all the different technology that's out on the market from ones we pioneered back in 07 and 08. Um, uh, back in the day, it was called the Life Compass. Yep. Um, the Life Compass was our first uh living model of uh, location-based activation, which was based even off phones that were semi-smart. They weren't even, this was before the iPhone even. The, the Nokia box phones, we spoke about yeah, that last time. exactly. And, and moving forward, we're constantly trying to think about the next big piece of technology that will be out there that can, that can really, really help our volunteers to get there faster and more effective. So And hands-off as much as possible. Like, we want to make this... As uh, on on the one hand, as as uh, seamless for the volunteers as possible, but also as, as user friendly and as foolproof, because uh, people are driving around on motorcycles in their cars, going about their daily lives, and suddenly they get an alert. We wanted to get them f get them the information of where the emergency is happening as fast as possible, as seamless as possible. So they, can, they can just drop everything and go, and then have to worry about contacting, making phone calls, figuring things out where they happen exactly. to be. Exactly, personal safety, personal safety of our own volunteers. We want them to go out and save lives, but at the same time, we want them to get home safe. But I'll take it back a notch, uh, and and even take it to the, to the other end of uh, when the person calls for help. They're dialing nine one one or our equivalent over here, one two two one of the uh, UH uh, uh, hotline here. And what happens is when a person calls in for an emergency, we want to have a seamless system from the moment they call to the moment somebody's actually there on the scene, touching them, treating them. So it's it starts back there. It starts, uh, Rafael was talking about Carbine. Carbine is, a, is, is an Israeli software company that developed a very, very cool um, app or add-on to our legacy CAD system here. 
um, which is a very useful tool. When a person calls, obviously we have their um, uh, caller ID number. And while the dispatcher is just, you know, doing the first assessment on the phone, um, they immediately send them a, a link to their uh, text message or WhatsApp or simultaneously to both. And they can instruct them at that instant to, to just press that link. And then just by pressing that link, it simply opens up um, a an app that was not pre-installed, but it literally opens up access to your phone, giving us your exact location uh, on the map, plus live video footage from the scene. And in those cases of people who are um, a, a hard of hearing or, or, or heavy of speech and can't talk, then you have text messaging, direct text messaging back and forth with the dispatcher. Right. And in, in certain cases, we've even had uh, volunteers who are um, audio impaired who've been able to use sign language uh, with, yeah. with the system over the video conference that opens up with that app uh, in order to have a sign language conversation with the person suffering. So it, it really is three layers of information that we have immediately that, that are at our disposal, and we're able to relay that over to the first responders. But but not only. What it means is is that while the volunteers, the EMTs, paramedics, are being dispatched to the scene, at the same time the dispatcher can instruct um, that bystander um, in how to perform CPR, um, position their hands correctly, do the pace, um, etc., and of course, be aware of any hazards around the patient. You know, uh, safety first is a is not only for our first responders, but also for the people on scene there. Um, Correct, and and also in cases of trauma, they can also tell them how to control a bleed, splint a wound, splint a limb. Um, instruct them basically on what to do and, and create them being the first responders themselves. Exactly. And, and, and in essence, we're, we're starting the, we're cutting the chain of survival real short because immediately um, they're being instructed on in how to treat the patient and, and stabilize them until the first responder will show up in our case on an average of three minutes nationally. And, and, and it's actually very cool. It's cool and it works. Um, and while the volunteers are on their ambu cycles or on the ambulance or whatever on their way to the scene, or if in their, they're off-road, they're on the beach, they're in the forest, they're hiking, you have hiking accidents, biking accidents, etc. Um, so, so they know exactly where to get to. And this is one of the biggest challenges. I mean, back in the day when I was dispatching, I don't know, this was maybe 15 years ago, uh, but, but the challenges are still today, is like, where are you, sir? And they're like, okay, I'm in the forest, Go figure how to get to that person. How do you get the ambulance there? How do you get the ATV there? How do you get the helicopter out there? And this tool, this carbine tool, is really instrumental. And within seconds, we have location. We have immediate treatment starting to be provided by the bystander. And we have our first responders on the way to the scene. That's correct. It's it's basically setting up like a digital flare, uh, in some of the equivalent of, so that people, when, when our volunteers get the call, they can they see on their phones exactly where the location is. And they'll be able to navigate there using whatever system, Google Maps, Waze, whatever they've got going on on their phones. And, and the cool part about it, it was actually it didn't require us to replace our legacy CAD system or whatever it is. It's just an add-on. It's an add-on to our system. Um, and, and it just makes life so much easier, um, not only for, for our dispatchers, for our first responders, but it is also a tool, like I said, to talk with people who are um, have impaired uh, communications, um, et cetera. And, and, and we're able to, to really... Uh, bridge that gap which is which which exists everywhere i think and and every in every ems system and every first responders uh, system that i think is one of the biggest challenges is location and and what do you do with that time trying to assist the patient on the other end and that that really is like the newer version of what we invented back in the day um as technology is is developing 
Um, right, we have a we have a story actually where um, I was involved in a story where we had uh, a couple hikers that went uh, on a on a hike near the area where I live. It's uh, the area called Gush uh, There's a lot of forests in the area, and near one of the towns, a bunch of hikers went off uh, to go hiking over one of the holidays that we had back in the spring when when COVID started dying down. Um, and one of them fell into a, a ravine and broke their leg. Um, the other one, their friends called dispatch and they used the carbine system to locate them. Um, and through that, we were able to locate which was the closest responder and where the closest ATV was to be able to reach them because cars and ambulances were able to get to the actual road first, but they weren't able to get to the p- patient. Uh, so we employed our, our regional ATV or all-terrain vehicle in order to go down to the ravine, actually pick up and have two responders on there treat the patient in the ravine, then pick them up, bring them up to the road where the ambulance could take them to the hospital. And this this is used day in and day out, but primarily we see it weekends when people go hiking and biking. And, and vacations. And, and vacations, of course. Um, we've had um, different um, uh, rafting accidents where where the the people who, who were injured on the rafting accident would just send their location, and immediately we could even relay over in Israel. Uh, uh, the only helicopters that do rescue uh, air rescues are the IDF Air Force, so we work in full cooperation with air command there, air control, and, and we were able to relay uh, the coordinates of the exact location of where to land the helicopter or bring down the cable, etc. Very, very cool stuff and 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 very instrumental. And I I think it really represents a lot of what we do here is trying to think. What's the next best gadget that we can use to save lives, so to speak? All right. In order to make it as as safe and seamless as possible for everybody. And that's something which is uh, we're, we're continuing on with the thing is our, our newest gadgets are the rug gear phones that we just uh, started handing out to the volunteers. So, so yes, yeah, it's, it's not – well, the phone is the, the end user piece, but it's all really part of a system um, where we're constantly trying to upgrade. In Israel, in United Hatzalah, we use – we don't use your classic – um, uh, uh, two-way radio. Uh, we use what's called a POC, that's PTT over cellular, which is the walkie-talkies based off of a cellular system um, off an Android device. And, and the ruggier happens to be a, a, a Android phone, which is uh, rugged, just like it sounds, and, and has all of our different softwares and apps on top of it uh, based on the device itself. Um, it enables us to uh, use many platforms, different frequencies, unlimited, basically, unlimited amount of, of different radio stations, frequencies. Mind and unlimited were, users on each frequency, which exactly. is a big change and, and very helpful. And think about it, 6,000 people in the network here. So divided, um, I don't know if we mentioned this in previous podcasts, but these 6,000 volunteers are, are divided into um, 325 teams um, and in 90 branches. So each one of those teams has their own uh, uh, geographic uh, radio uh, system. But because our whole concept of activation is not based off of your location geographically and your um, classic team, rather where you are during the day and what you're doing, it knows to create those ad hoc radio uh, groups that that enable you to, to participate in any discussion that's relating to the call that you're actually on at that moment. Right. And that's something that's very useful because when one volunteer goes out and responds to a call, even if they're not from that geographical location, but they've they've radioed in, they're on the way, all the other volunteers who are in that area and on that radio channel will know that they're there and know whether they're needed or not needed or whether they have enough forces at the, at the scene to be able to treat the patient effectively. Um, they'll also be able to relay back whether they need uh, intensive care or ALS uh, to show up uh, and help and what the status of the patient is live at the scene. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just another tool. It's a tool, but that is very versatile, and we can use it in many different ways, create uh, groups ad hoc. If there's an incident now, a large-scale incident, an MCI or something like that, where we'll have many responders coming in from different regions, from different areas, from different groups, immediately they'll go into the polygon and, and have their group automatically opened up, and they'll be part of the uh, operational management of that specific incident. And once they're done with that incident and they leave that area, immediately they drop off of that group and are able to respond to those regular routine calls in their in their area once they're leaving the, the affected area of the mass casualty incident. All right. Now, this sounds pretty highbrow for probably some of our listeners who are used to more the city, city dispatch and two-way radio systems, and that's it. Um, we need a dedicated IT team for this. Am I correct? Well, yeah, we have we actually have a very big IT team here because essentially we're think about it uh, like we're servicing six thousand end users on a daily basis. Um, so the IT team obviously you know needs to make sure that we're working according to HIPAA protocols and and all that all that stuff there regarding. Uh, um, a, a cybersecurity and and things like that, especially nowadays when we know how how any uh, institution is is attacked by uh, cyber cyber terrorism of uh, of of whatever for whatever reason they're doing it. Um, and we we're undergoing personally, our organization is undergoing daily attacks, phishing attacks. Uh, um, uh, um, and, and we had and, one recently where they actually closed down one of our websites and, uh, they closed down our websites. They put on sort of clowns and all kinds of other things on the, on the website. Um, yeah, it's a challenge, but then again, that's a challenge that I think every uh, institution is, is, is going through. Um, and, and that's why our team is really, uh, dedicated to it. But not only that, it's not only about cybersecurity, it's about servicing the volunteers. Correct. Like we said. And making sure everything runs smoothly. Exactly. I mean, our, our, uh, service center, our call center for the volunteers, for the customer, our customer support system for the volunteers uh, gets, I don't know, about maybe 60 or 70 calls a day for different support and our system. And they're able to take control of the device from uh, remote remotely and, and uh, upload, download the different apps, make sure that everything is working correctly, connect the groups, the relevant groups and whatever other service they need. And, and, and the volunteers back off. The idea is really to, to give that support system to the volunteer. So it's as hassle free as possible because for us, uh, we see the volunteer is the most important asset. Is his time is uh, so we're very sensitive to give the support, whether it's with equipment or whether it's with the technological support or whatever it is. Because the volunteer, the less he needs to hassle around with logistics, the more dedicated he'll be to saving lives in his community. Absolutely. Um, and the other thing, the other, the new, new real, I think, uh, big thing that made a lot of waves in the news recently was was this co-sharing car system that we've developed, which you worked very, very hard on. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that for a minute. Well, first of all, anyone who loves Transformers will love this car. I was I was a big fan as a kid. I, I had my Optimus Prime and uh, my Bumblebee. Bumblebee, come on, go we Bumblebee always, all the way. <laughs> Only Bumblebee. We were always fighting with them. So, so that's what I had envisioned when, when we started working, uh, I don't know, it was about a year ago with this company called City Transformers. Yeah. Um, not by coincidence the name because it's a very unique car that they developed as an electric car, which is actually, um, it changes its size. Right. It fo it's foldable. It, it, trans folds. it transforms. It transforms from a motorcycle size to a car size. And, and that way we enjoy both worlds. We enjoy the ability, I mean, today, we activate over a thousand motorcycles and mopeds in in the most congested um, areas of traffic in Israel and Tel Aviv and all the big metropolis, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, etc. Where getting through traffic and rush hour to a life threatening emergency 
in an ambulance can take 10, 15, 20 minutes, where a motorcycle can actually get through that traffic within two, three minutes uh, for that same um, a little street. And and yet the risks of motorcycles we deal with every day. Is, That's is absolutely correct. Personal, personal safety uh, of the volunteers, we have accidents. Yes, unfortunately, we do. Yeah. We do have accidents. And we have uh, specialized training for the drivers, which they have to undergo every year and a half. Absolutely. Um, we Every motorcyclist has to wear full gear every time they go on the motorcycle, whether it's uh, traveling just down the street or a longer trip. Um, and and there's, yet- a lot, there's a lot of automotive safety and layers upon layers of safety put in uh, through the training, through the gear and the equipment that everyone's given, um, making everything as hassle-free for the volunteers as possible. But... And all that, all that said, accidents still happen. They do. Um, and when City Transformers came to us with, the, with their idea, we said, this is brilliant. This is brilliant on so many levels. Number one is the personal safety of our uh, volunteers. You're getting safety of a car. Uh, um, clearly, it's not safe like a big family-sized car or an SUV, but it's safer than a motorcycle. It's four wheels. It's closed. It, it's 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 weatherproof, obviously, um, and 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 it's it's souped up with all the technology you can imagine of your future car, um, fully electrical, um, semi-autonomous with different components there, um, and and the idea was, we were thinking about it. Number one is for the personal safety of the volunteer. Number two was thinking about the sharing, the car sharing model. Our whole idea of this organization is leveraging power of community. It's taking those volunteers from throughout the communities, throughout Israel, that are at work or at home or going about their day, and when the call happens, it goes off on their device, on their Ruggier device, and and, and they get dispatched to the scene because when it goes off on their on their belt, they know that they are nearby. They're within that vicinity of that five minutes that are that, that the call is within their five minute vicinity, and and, and therefore um, is most relevant to them. Um, however, when you're in your office, not all of our volunteers have a motorcycle. We have six thousand volunteers and only a thousand motorcycle, and the rest, when they're in the office, clearly in their car is either parked in the underground car park or a few blocks away. In you know you know what it's like parking in the big metropolis. No different here than anywhere else in the world. Um, and then they become ineffective. They can only respond within their workplace, but which which has use as well. There are even ver- we think about like vertical response time as absolutely, well. Absolutely, but, but only for their building exactly or the they- building next door. What happens if it's down the block? Then they're they're ineffective. But if we can take a whole bunch of these cars and position them, I'm sure you're all familiar with Lime, Wind, Bird, all these scooters that you see in all the big cities now. Where you can uh, you have an app on your phone and you jump on one of these scooters, drive five blocks down and leave it alone over there, and 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 go on to your next meeting or whatever it is. Same idea, but with a life-saving electrical car, right? With medical equipment in the back, fully equipped with a basic life support, advanced life support, and with access to all those volunteers that happen to be working in those metropolitan office buildings. That when the system will identify that they're nearby the call, it will not only notify them where the call is. It would also alert to them where the nearest by car sharing emergency response vehicle is. And they can jump into one of those and swiftly get the call. And, right. and then treat the person, come back and leave the car back where it was. 
um, or even leave the car where or the emergency in, was. Yeah, we're gonna we, we've been talking to different municipalities here, um, uh, different city councils on on having different stations for these things throughout the city, just like they have bikes and and other things that that, that the public can use, is to have a, a a shared emergency response vehicle, and this will be a force multiplier to the response mechanism in, in the cities and transforming. Even even what we've been doing and upgrading it to, to really the next generation of, of emergency response. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, one of the reasons we, we chose to do this uh, model, as opposed to putting on, let's say, a whole bunch more motorcycles, is A, because of the safety thing mentions that you mentioned before, um, all the, the issues that come up with, with a motorcycle versus a car. Uh, and the other aspect is a lot of our volunteers aren't licensed to drive motorcycles, and those even who are have to have an extra special licensing for— Not licensed or not interested. Also. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's also extra licensing, which you need to drive a first response motorcycle in Israel, which is a new thing that the tra uh, transportation ministry has put in in recent years. Um, so we can avoid all that by having these cars, and then any volunteer can go Absolutely. And it's a regular uh, driver's license for a car— um, and, and, and they're able to respond with one of those with the, once again, the the transforming capabilities of it becoming a car versus a motorcycle size. I mean, the whole width of it is a three feet um, on, on motorcycle size. And then it opens up to like six feet um, when it needs to speed up on the higher opener, uh, more open roads, um, uh, giving you that, that additional safety um, uh, for driving and responding faster. So it really is win-win across the board. And very exciting, actually, for the volunteers because all they want to do, there's nothing more frustrating. Everyone wants to see this and be the first to drive well, it. <laughs> I, well, that too. But there's nothing more frustrating for me as a paramedic and, and for any one of our volunteers when you get a call of a cardiac arrest that's only two blocks away, but you know. It's going to be 15 minutes to get there. It's going to be 15 or 20 minutes to get there, and, and there's no point anymore. So this this, this comes to cater that that egoistic need of our volunteers to respond and save lives. The need for speed, um, which is something which, you know, we're, we're using and, and trying to change and adapt to every, every day as the, as the world changes with us. Um, I know in, the, in the, the central part of the country, in the Tel Aviv, greater Tel Aviv area, they're even planning now and having um, fares to use to bring a car into the region. Um, which is plan they're planning that for the next couple of years. Yeah, to taxes, taxes for metropolins, and 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 we're all thinking about also global warming and 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 emissions and all of that. So why go to work with your car if you don't need to? You can get on the train and go to work, and if you want to respond to save lives, you could because you'll have one of these emergency response vehicles parked outside of your office, and you can jump out and save lives while you're at it. It's something that's going to be really. Revolutionary, I think, for the whole system here, and once it opens up, I, I think it really connects to, to the. I mean, look at our look at our cities. We can see the shared scooters, shared cars, shared bicycles, all these public access for 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 everyone, and they just have their app, and you can use it. Then why not do it to save lives? It just makes sense. Absolutely, and especially embracing like what you're saying the, the, with the volunteer aspect, uh, we're really crowdsourcing first response in, in a big way. So this is opening it up for everybody to really become a lot more effective. It's crowdsourcing, life-saving. Yep. Um, okay. We've talked about the carbine system. We've talked about our phone technology. We've talked about some of the uh, the new city transformer cars that are coming up. And hopefully we said the first one's going to be coming up around 2023. Well, actually, we, we signed a very big deal, a very big contract with them, a five-year contract uh, to get over a 1,000 of these uh, cars Um transformer cars um, for our volunteers over a five-year uh, period. Um, and You're, yes, you're going to name yours Bumblebee, aren't you? 
Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm going to have it orange. <laughs> I think it but, was yellow. <laughs> yeah, but, but we do orange. We That's do what orange. we do. Um, yeah, but we're actually going into pilot stages with them in the coming year. Um, the car is uh, being regulated. They're already at Prototype 7. And um, they actually just presented now in the Munich, a big international Munich car show, uh, gaining amazing, amazing awareness. And and this is a really high-end car. It really is. This is the Tesla of the of the emergency response vehicles. Would you think this is something that would be applicable to, to other cities and other countries and their systems? Absolutely. There's no reason why not. I mean, first of all, the whole concept... Um, I mean, we've been talking about uh, crowdsourcing life-saving on a professional level um, uh, for, for so long. And, and we go around the world talking about this, trying to understand the importance of leveraging community um, for the emergency response by using professional volunteers. Um, and I think that, that especially nowadays, when we see the challenges in EMS of, uh, of having enough uh, manpower, human resources, um, to man the the ambulances and everything, we see how how everyone is really stretched to the limit. I mean, I yeah. just I just came back recently from one of the conferences that was talking about these challenges, and it, it's understood because COVID COVID took a huge toll on the whole medical system, both in hospital and pre hospital. And I think that that what I've learned and what I've been talking about, and I think it's being that people are being more receptive to it now, is really the importance of community and the role that community can play in this in this need. And you know, leveraging technology for it can just make it more professional, more serious, and more effective. But I think it's time that everyone understands this and and tries to work to find these solutions of how to leverage community and not only think about, yeah, it's only the working system that can do it. Right. And I think going back to that, there's, I mean, I've recently read a lot of articles where they've been talking about a 20 to 30 percent drop in manpower over the last year alone uh, across the board um, in the United States and, and Canada. And that's, those are scary numbers for a system that was already overtaxed uh, beforehand. So I think this leveraging the community can really provide um, a, a possibly a long-term solution even for that problem that's coming up because you're, you're empowering and training people from the community to provide that first response until the rest of the, the, the system can get there. And when talking about the U.S. and Canada, I mean, historically, volunteers used to play a more vital role in EMS response. It's just over the past 20 years that it, it transfer, transferred um, into, into the working system only, the official working system. I think it's time to understand that we need to go back to a lot of that. Yes, the official services can mandate the criteria and what's needed, but use the community. There are some really good people out there. Train them right, equip them, and, and manage them, and they'll be your force multiplier by far. Right. And I think if you, you sort of like put the two systems hand in hand, you'll come up with a with an excellent uh, solution that can be hopefully helpful and save, save a lot of lives over time. Cut down response time, get the first responders there at the scene, stop the bleed, start the CPR, um, provide the EpiPen, like what you were saying in the last episode, and uh, cut down on that first initial response time until the ambulance team can get there. Um, and that's that's something which is incredibly vital. Uh, we see it every day in, in medical emergencies here that happen in Israel. How, how many lives are saved on the nearly 2,000 calls that we go on on an everyday basis by the people who arrive first? Um, and it's also there's there's an awareness that I think 
uh, a lot of the volunteers come because they come with a little bit of gusto and they come with a little bit of, uh, of oomph. They want to help. And that desire allows them to be a little bit more alert and aware uh, at certain times um, than people who are in the system and, and going through long shifts uh, that can happen. Um, there was a story from even Thursday where we had uh, a volunteer who responded to a car accident. It was a self-inflicted car accident. One woman was uh, somewhat inebriated and driving, unfortunately. And a police officer was there. And uh, the volunteer you know, said, do we need medical help? And the police officer said, yes, the, per- the woman's injured. So he treated the woman, and then he looked around the car and saw that there was a car seat in the back. And he looked around for, for an infant, and the woman said, no, the infant's not here. She's at home. Um, I left her at home. I said, okay, is anyone with her? And the woman said, no. And the police oh, that's officer, good. <laughs> that's the police very responsible. did not ask that question. He didn't, it didn't connect because he was dealing with the scene that he was at. Um, and he, he had, you know, a, a DUI where he had to, you know, arrest the person and process and deal with everything that was going on and call for medical assistance, which he did. Um, but he didn't think to look and see if there was a car seat, if there was someone else. And so the volunteer asked the police officer for permission to go and go to the person's house, got the keys from the woman, um, and then went to the house and started taking care of the baby for a while until yeah, the father that, could be that's, called. That's and, and what arrived. happens when you're a community-based organization. You care about the community, and you really think about those uh, um, those, those aspects that your typical um, professional would not be thinking of. And and we see this all the time. Um, or even if they were thinking of, they just have a lot of things going on in their mind. You need the extra pair of eyes, the extra hands to come in and, and look at the scene a little bit differently. And mind you, in most of the cases, Rafael, most of the cases happen within the vicinity of your home, which means in your neighborhood, a lot of the cases, people know the people one way or another, um, see each other, you know, the supermarket or the pharmacy. And, and now it's just, it's just about helping your neighbor. Yep. A lot of times that's the case also. And then you get those other cases, just like the other night in my supermarket, there was a cardiac arrest. And I personally was not there, but uh, my neighbor, who's a volunteer, was there in EMT. And he was walking around the supermarket. His, his, his app goes off that in the supermarket, there's a cardiac arrest. And he runs out literally less than a minute, 35-year-old, card, sudden cardiac arrest, starts CPR, pulls a defibrillator, sends someone in the parking lot to get from his car a defibrillator, shocks the patient, return of spontaneous circulation instantly. When the ambulance got there, he was already breathing on his own to the state that it was an argument with the ambulance team. Yeah, it was cardiac arrest. It wasn't cardiac arrest. Wow. <laughs> those are, I mean, those are great stories to hear. They really are. Uh, we had one last night, actually, in, in uh, where I live, um, where there was sadly an infant that stopped breathing, and uh, the neighbor was a doctor. Um, the mother initiated CPR, screamed, knocked on the neighbor's door. The doctor came over and started helping, and then I was across the street, another volunteer was across the street, was two doors down. We all came and helped, uh, and thankfully we got the pulse back of the, of the child and then sent them off to the hospital. Yeah, well, we can go on and on with these with these stories, and, and we hope to do that also in the coming episodes. Yes, we do. Uh, <laughs> um, the coming episode is going to be a little bit more story-oriented. Uh, now that we sort of laid the groundwork of what the organization is, how we do what we do, uh, we're going to get to some in-depth stories and, and sort of look at the you know how they happen, why they happen and some of the volunteers' experiences and feelings of, of why they go out and do what they do and drop everything in their lives, their own family time, their own work, their own uh, and leisure do- time. And what it does to them. And what, what it does, does to them. To them on, on so many levels, on personal levels, on professional levels, on the community level. And, of course, uh, is, is a very important aspect is also how we maintain that. How yeah. we maintain that um, on from different aspects of that as well. How we maintain it, their their enthusiasm to go out 
and also how we make sure that their mental health uh, stays uh, stays intact. Correct. And you know, how, on a personal level, it does how does it change them? Because it changes everyone for for good and bad. Yeah, but I, I always claim honestly that volunteering is a very egoistic thing. It's not about what you're doing for other people. You're actually doing for yourself. You're doing for yourself because you, it makes you feel so good. So good. You, you go home you're, you, you, from a successful CPR or, or you just did a simple Heimlich maneuver and saved that kid from choking or, or, or things like that. And you go home so full of yourself, <laughs> <laughs> feeling so good about yourself. And you know what? And then your spouses have to suffer with it. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's true too. But then again, that's the energy. That's what keeps you going. That's what keeps us going. That is until they become volunteers also. <laughs> Yes, indeed. And then it becomes a family story. I mean, uh, it's generations here. We have generations of volunteers that have been volunteering for over 30 years, and their kids are volunteers, and their spouses. Their sons-in-laws and, and daughter-in-laws. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. Well, my wife is a volunteer as well. She said after so many years of me running out when we were supposed to do the uh, bathing time for the kids, and I'd exactly get that call and run out. So at a certain point, a few, I think it was five years ago, she said, if you can't beat them, join them. She did the EMT course, and then she runs out and leaves me. So, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not quite there yet, but who knows, maybe one day. Um, that's all the time we have for now. Thank you so much for listening uh, to Real Life Rescues. I'm Raphael. And I'm Dovey. And we'll speak to you again in another uh, two weeks' time. See you next time. Yeah.